Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport for WFHB I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. And now for your environmental reports. Station WYHI from Terre Haute reports bee populations are declining. More than half of the bat species in the United States are in severe decline or listed as endangered. An international scientist recently announced that the monarch butterfly is perilously close to extinction. What these three creatures have in common is that they are all pollinators. Without them, fruits, vegetables, and other plants wouldn't be pollinated, and that's a major problem for our food supply. Quote, one out of every three bites of food that we eat is directly connected to a pollinator, end quote, said Ron McGill, the communications director and wildlife expert at Zoo Miami on CNN. Around 30% of the food that ends up on our tables gets there because of things like butterflies, bees, and bats. Losing these critical populations could also mean losing some of our favorite foods. Apples, melons, cranberries, pumpkins, squash, broccoli, and almonds are among the foods most susceptible to the pollinator decline, according to the Food and Drug Administration. Bees in particular are responsible for pollinating around 90 commercially produced crops the agency reports. Even tequila is at risk. Quote, it's also intricately connected whether you're eating the food that is directly pollinated or eating something that depends on that pollinator, end quote, McGill said. In other words, if you're eating fried chicken or pork chops, those chickens and pigs eat fruit, vegetables, and other plants that depend on pollinators. And the climate crisis has taken a toll on pollinators, While more intense and prolonged drought is the most obvious impact, a growing concern is the effect of extreme heat, particularly on butterflies. Because butterflies are some of the most sensitive insects to change in temperature, they're considered the canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate change, McGill said. Warmer temperatures cause plants to bloom sooner, which is out of sync with when the butterflies lay eggs and metamorphose. This will mean the flowers they depend on for food will have already bloomed out, leaving little for the butterflies to feed on, which will in turn greatly impact their ability to reproduce and survive. A new study from the First Street Foundation has shown the coming development of what it called an extreme heat belt across much of the country, including Indiana. With that heat belt, The heat index, which indicates how the air feels from the combination of air temperature and relative humidity, could reach 125 degrees Fahrenheit for at least one day a year by 2053. Currently, 8 million Americans experience extreme heat, defined as a maximum heat index of more than 125 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Because of the expected warming during the next three decades, 170 million Americans are expected to experience such heat. The developing extreme heat belt covers an area from northern Texas to Illinois and beyond. By 2030, some coastal areas in the southeast and mid-Atlantic regions might experience days with a heat index of more than 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Thus, the report shows that throughout the nations, its residents will have to deal with the effects of rising heat, though distinctions based on geography will pertain. A fast-growing wildfire, named the McKinney Fire, has grown to more than 52,000 acres in just two days since the beginning of August, becoming California's largest wildfire in 2022. Two people have been reported dead and nearly 3,000 residents have been asked to evacuate. It is 0% contained, although heavy smoke helped slow the growth even as it kept most aircraft grounded. The fire began in Siskiyou County near the California-Oregon border and has since exploded to more than 80 square miles, exacerbated by thunderstorms and high wind conditions. Climate change is increasing the size, frequency, and intensity of wildfires as well as the length of the fire season. There are currently 53 large wildfires burning across the United States in California, Montana, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Texas. Several Native American tribes are clashing with the federal government over a proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass, Nevada, which the tribes consider an important sacred site that has cultural, religious, and ceremonial significance. The tribes oppose the mine. The Thacker Pass Lithium Mine Project is located on land in northern Nevada that the northern Paiute have lived on for perhaps 15,000 years. The reserves of lithium at the site are enormous. Lithium is an essential element used in batteries that power electric vehicles, laptops, and cell phones. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management approved the mine during the final days of Trump's presidency. Since then, hundreds of people have occupied the land near the proposed site in opposition to the project. This past April, an archaeological company began digs at the site. A Native American who filmed the workers at the site near the proposed mine thought the workers dug up artifacts from ancestral burial grounds. On August 9th, the Bureau of Land Management, quote, informed area tribes that they have discovered five new historic sites in Thacker Pass, end quote, including the site of an 1865 massacre federal soldiers carried out against Paiute and Shoshone men, women, and children. That discovery has fueled opposition to the mine. The New York Times reports that a team of scientists has found a cheap, effective way to destroy so-called forever chemicals a group of compounds that pose a global threat to human health. The chemicals, known as PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, are found in a spectrum of products and contaminate water and soil around the world. Left on their own, they're remarkably durable, remaining dangerous for generations. Scientists have been searching for ways to destroy them for years. In a study just published in the journal Science, a team of researchers rendered PFAS molecules harmless by mixing them with two inexpensive compounds at a low boil. In a matter of hours, the PFAS molecules fell apart. A new technique might provide a way to destroy PFAS chemicals once they've been pulled out of contaminated water or soil. But William Dictill, 
a chemist at Northwestern University and a co-author of the study, said that a lot of effort lay ahead to make it work outside the confines of a lab. We need to explore around the edges of this approach to see if there are limitations. A common method to get rid of this concentrated PFAS is to burn it, but some studies indicate that incineration fails to destroy all of the chemicals and lofts the surviving pollution into the air. In May, the Defense Department halted its incineration of fire-suppressing foam. Thus, this new approach may have come at a critical time. This summer has hit Europe hard with heat waves and drought, and there's no better gauge for the extremity of the situation than the Swiss Alps, where glaciers have been melting at an unprecedented pace. The mountains have been warming so quickly due to the climate crisis that the bare earth of a mountain pass in Switzerland that has been covered in a thick sheet of ice since at least the Roman era is becoming exposed, reported the Guardian. The pass will be entirely in the open air in a few weeks, a statement from the Glacier 3000 Ski Resort said, as the Guardian reported. Ten years ago, the mountain pass that sits snugly between two glaciers at an altitude of more than 9,000 feet was covered in ice nearly 50 feet thick. The loss of glaciers has downstream effects. Italy's longest river, the Po, was once called the King of Rivers by Virgil. It was considered mighty less for its length. It's only about 400 miles long than for its expanding width. The countryside next to the river, the Pandanian Plain, was so flat that the Po was often less of a river than a slow-moving marsh, always flooding land dozens of miles either side of its porous banks. Since it flows entirely in Italian territory, rising a few hundred meters inside the French-Italian border in the Cattian Alps and heading east until it reaches the Adriatic Sea just south of Venice, the Po is part of the national psyche. The poet Guido Serenetti once wrote, Quote, you need to understand the Po to understand Italy, end quote. But now, as northern Italy faces its worst drought in 70 years, the river is also a prism through which to glimpse the country's ecological emergency. Now there are areas where the Po is so low that it's possible to cross the sandbars without getting your feet wet. Climate change skeptics frequently cite the 140-year record of global temperatures as too brief to prove that atmospheric carbon dioxide is a factor in defining climate. How about climate over the last 400 million years? When CO2 was high, as high as 3,000 parts per million, the planet was 10 to 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than today, and there was no ice at either pole. The CO2 came from volcanoes. When the CO2 was very low, the planet was frozen over, called snowball earth, even the oceans had ice at the equator. This long history makes it clear that atmospheric carbon dioxide has played an important role in determining the climate for over 400 million years. Over the last 400 million years, the Earth was more often in its hothouse mode than its icebox mode. There were crocodiles in northern Canada along with dawn redwoods. The land masses did not reposition through shifting of tectonic plates. They were in the north all along. The Earth began to cool permanently when India crashed into Asia 40 to 50 million years ago. This collision formed the Himalayas and initiated a monsoon cycle. Rains in the mountains dissolved carbon dioxide and the mountain rocks absorbed the carbon dioxide, 
dropping the CO2 content gradually over millions of years from 1,000 parts per million into the range of 180 to 300 parts per million. We humans have lived over 300,000 years of existence with carbon dioxide levels between 180 and 300 parts per million until the beginning of the industrial era. And continuing with Earth's temperature, as the Earth was cooling, it went through a period with atmospheric CO2 around 400 to 420 ppm. This was the mid-Pliocene, 3 million years ago. The mean annual surface temperatures were approximately 2 to 4 degrees centigrade warmer than pre-industrial temperatures. There was no ice at the North Pole. Ice began forming on Antarctica around 32 million years ago and a 50-foot increase in sea level. The sea level rise was large because temperature and ice were in equilibrium. Today, the talk of limiting warming to 2 degrees centigrade is largely limited to lobbyists of oil and utility companies who want to say we're fine and don't need to act. Most scientists conclude a 2.5 degree centigrade to 4.6 centigrade increase is very likely by 2100. Thus, we will have temperatures and climate close to the mid-Pliocene. Sea level rise has not tracked temperature because it may take a century or three for the ice to melt. If we track the mid-Pliocene, all the Arctic ice, most of the Greenland ice, and some portion of Antarctica ice will melt. The USA will look very different. For example, the Florida Peninsula will be underwater. On our current business-as-usual path, it is entirely possible that the average temperature of Earth eventually rises from 58 degrees Fahrenheit to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Our current course could bring about this outcome in 150 to 300 years. The 68 degree Fahrenheit temperature is important because historically at that temperature or higher, there has been no polar ice and ocean levels have been 200 feet higher. A local group of the global climate activists calling themselves the Extinction Rebellion has been busy filling the holes in golf courses in southern France with cement to protest golf courses' exemption from a water ban that has resulted from France's severe drought. The exemption for golf courses has caused controversy because a hundred French villages are short of drinking water. Residents are prohibited from watering their gardens and washing their cars in the areas most hard hit by the drought. Yet golf courses are immune to the nationwide restrictions. Though the water bans are applicable nationally, enforcement is up to regional officials. The Green mayor of one southeastern city criticized the golf course exemption, saying, quote, We continue to protect the rich and powerful. End quote. In a statement, Extinction Rebellion said the exemption demonstrates that quote, economic madness takes precedence over ecological reason, end quote, and that golf is the quote, leisure industry of the most privileged, end quote. In some places, golf courses are still permitted to water the greens at night and use no more than 30% of the usual amount of water. One French river has almost dried up. Two-thirds of France are under a declaration of crisis, and rainfall is down by about 85%. Researchers published results in the journal Phys.org, showing that Africa's migratory birds are threatened by changing weather patterns in the center and east of the continent that have depleted natural water systems and caused a devastating drought. 
Hotter and drier conditions due to climate change make it difficult for traveling species who are losing their water sources and breeding grounds, with many now endangered or forced to alter their migration patterns entirely by settling in cooler northern areas. Roughly 10% of Africa's more than 2,000 bird species, including dozens of migratory birds, are threatened, with 28 species classed as critically endangered. Over one-third of them are especially vulnerable to climate change and extreme weather, an analysis by environmental group BirdLife International said, quote, Birds are being affected by climate change just like any other species, end quote. BirdLife policy coordinator Ken Mwathe said, Migratory birds are effective more than other groups of birds because they must keep on moving, which makes it more likely that a site they rely on during their journey has degraded in some way. The African-Eurasian Flyway, the flight corridor for birds that travel south through the Mediterranean Sea and Sahara Desert for the winter, harbors over 2,600 sites for migrating birds. An estimated 87% of African sites are at risk from climate change, a greater proportion than in Europe or Asia, a study by the United Nations Environment Agency and a conservation group Wetlands International found. Africa is more vulnerable to climate change because it is less able to adapt, said Evans McColway, a retired meteorologist and science director at the World Meteorological Organization. According to the New York Times, for decades, scientists have pursued a tantalizing possibility for bolstering food supplies and easing hunger for the world's poorest, improving photosynthesis, the biological process in plants that sustains nearly all life on Earth. Now, researchers say that by using genetic modifications to increase the efficiency of photosynthesis, they significantly increased yields in a food crop, soybeans, providing a glimmer of potential that such methods could someday put more food on tables as climate change and other threats make it harder for vulnerable populations across the globe to feed their families. The scientists tested their gene alterations on soy plants grown in a single location during just two crop seasons. In interviews, they acknowledged that more trials were needed to see whether results would hold up across different environments and weather conditions. Their methods will also have to pass muster with the government regulators before crops transformed this way will ever reach farmers' fields. And soy, much of which is grown to feed livestock, not humans, is just a start. Longer term, researchers are hoping to raise yields in staple foods like rice, cowpea, that is, black-eyed peas, and cassava. But with the world projected to require big increases in food production in order to meet the demand in coming decades, the findings suggest that such genetic tinkering holds promise for meeting those needs, said Amanda P. D'Souza, a crop scientist at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and lead author of a new study describing the results, which was published Thursday in the journal Science. There will be a long road to get there, Dr. D'Souza said. But now is the hour, she said, to work toward as many new solutions as possible. Gaining approval of genetically modified crops requires years of research. Inside Climate Change reports that U.S. consumers are expected to save money on their electricity bills under the nation's first comprehensive climate law, perhaps more than $200 billion over the next decade, economists project. 
Even utilities are talking about eased prices at the same time they are detailing new clean energy investments. The potential price drop flies in the face of an argument made by climate action foes for years that a move to cleaner power will mean higher energy prices for U.S. homes and businesses. Instead, the Inflation Reduction Act, signed this week by President Joe Biden, will direct government support to companies that invest in and generate carbon-free power, lowering their costs in a way that will enable them to pass those savings to their customers, analysts say. Certainly, Democrats were weighing the politics when they chose such a consumer-friendly incentives-based climate strategy. But the new climate law also reflects some of the latest thinking among economists. Recent research shows that higher prices imposed through a tool like carbon taxing may not be the best way to drive fossil fuel emissions out of U.S. electricity. In fact, more than half of U.S. residential consumers already are paying too much for electricity if the carbon cost of the current electricity grid were taken into account, according to a study by University of California researchers. Urban parks can be oases of biodiversity in the depths of concrete jungles, not only benefiting plants and animals, but also humans, a fact underlined during the COVID-19 lockdowns when stir-crazy urbanites sought green spaces to get in touch with nature. Now a new study shows that the happiness people experience inside urban parks is comparable to the happiness people experience on holidays like New Year's Day and Christmas. The study was conducted by researchers at the University of Vermont using a timeline of average societal happiness based on a tool built and maintained by the university that uses Twitter posts to measure the proportion of positive words to negative words. For example, on Christmas 2020, words like merry, happy, and family littered the platform, driving up the day's average happiness score. On February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, words like war, invasion, and attack dominated, driving the happiness score down. The authors of the study published in the journal PLUS One, used the happiness data from tweets posted by people in urban parks in the 25 most populous cities in the United States. They found that a greater percentage of happiness words were included in tweets posted inside parks compared to those posted outside of parks. The effect was greater in larger parks exceeding 100 acres. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience in all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Take a hike on the Trail 3 hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, August 27th from 9 to 10 a.m. Meet with Tony at the Twin Caves parking lot. On the hike, you will learn about and see some plants that used to have or were thought to have medicinal qualities. 
The trail is partially rugged. An upcycled speakers program is scheduled for Sunday, August the 28th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake. Drop by the campground playground to make a simple speaker for a smartphone out of upcycled materials. You will also get ideas for how to upcycle and reuse items before discarding them. Learn how to get back into your canoe or kayak at the Kayak Recovery Workshop at the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Sunday, August 28th at 1.30 p.m. The workshop is for people who have basic kayaking skills but are still uncomfortable with how to handle an accidental capsize. Plan to get wet and spend time in the water. Register at bit.ly slash Kayak Recovery dash eight dash twenty eight dash twenty twenty two. Learn how to identify an owl by its call at the Owl Calls program at the Paintown State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Friday, September the second, from seven thirty to eight thirty p.m. Meet at the activity center in the amphitheater. You will look at images of owls and then listen to its call. You will also get to see real owl wings and feet. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holly and Linda Green. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Patrick Callanan edited it. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.